Hey, this is Mike Missanelli, and you're listening to the Feed the Embiid, the number one Sixers podcast in America. Yeah, 2-1 on his jersey, playing like he's number one. Best big in the league, and it's no debate. Who's from the haters? Point him to the exit. I guess every franchise needs its process. Every franchise needs its own process. Coming down the lane, yeah. Watch your head, yeah. We post a every game, yeah. Get your Kodak. Once he gets you under the basket, you better just pray. Hit you with the jab step, knock down, lock from Ben. Get out the way, and one. Let the fans know it. Yeah, homie, let the fans know it. Watch the trailer, the three is going in your eye. If you mess, you better get back. Cause if the bees, there won't be a putback. Keep all that trash out of the paint. Cause the bees will put it back in your face. He's a cold blooded killer, and he take no prisoners. Yeah, dump off from TJ. Call it the feed to a bee. What's going on, everybody? This is the Feed to Embiid. I am your host, Austin Krell. I have my, my my fabulous co-host, Brock Landis. He is back after seemingly falling off the face of the earth the last couple days or so. Brock, how are you? I'm doing well, man. I'm, I'm feeling spontaneous, Austin. So I think I'm going to start a YouTube <laughs> channel for 2K content. Uh, that's where I've been for the previous few days. But yeah, I'm looking into the logistics behind it. Uh, I know you need this thing called an Elgato, I believe, to record everything on the Xbox and get it from your Xbox onto a computer in HD. But I think there's ways around it. You could record before the gameplay. You could pull gameplay clips if you record it on the Xbox. So I'm looking into all the logistics behind it, but I'm actually really interested in starting one. I figure if I have all this extra time on my hands and I play it so often with my friends and we keep ourselves entertained in the party, I might as well share that with the world and that could be a few people that want to watch it. People could stumble across it. I could put it on my Twitter, whatever that may be. Uh, I haven't determined yet, but I think it's a fun idea that I've been playing playing around with lately. I guess it's what you do when when there's no nothing to do outside over the course of summer, right? Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I got you. Um, so I, I want to dive in. I want to begin with the uh, the Brett Brown Zoom conference that he had, um, and I I want to begin. What was sort of your big takeaway? What what resonated with you from that Zoom call that he said? Sure, uh, Brown had a couple of good quotes. He believes that the carpet was pulled onto the team this year, and he also believes that the process is incomplete unless he sees a championship before his tenure ends as a 76ers head coach. Uh, But all of that aside, I think the most important pull from this entire Zoom conference was the Ben Simmons injury. And I believe I used this from the Elm Brand press conference as my big takeaway, but this is really something that the fans of the team and the NBA fans haven't had clarified. What is the health or the status of Ben Simmons? And I think it's significant that Brett Brown said that when Simmons came down with his back injury at Milwaukee, And I believe he attempted to come back into the game when he came down on his back and got hurt and had a few trips to the locker room and came back and the medical staff gave him the green light to play. Brett said it was one of the most devastating injuries he's ever seen because Ben was vomiting and it was tough to just get him on the plane and comfortable sitting on the plane and the trips home wanting to stay in a basketball mind. So Ben Simmons and the team alike seemed really distraught 
with this injury. And it leads me to believe that the injury was way more severe than the PR maybe conveyed it to be. Uh, but Brett did allude to Ben Simmons being in good spirits and, and feeling well. And I do have a personal source of mine that is saying that Bet's, uh, Brent, excuse me, Ben is excited to play and he's in good spirits. So that's encouraging. And, and I think it's, it's really a testament to both the medical staff and, and the Sixers team that they let Ben Simmons continue to play that game despite what he was going through aside from just the back pain. But also it's optimistic that he's feeling good and it makes you wonder what the Sixers will look like at full health in a potential playoff run, which we're also going to talk about in a couple of minutes. So, okay. I, I like this. You're, 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 you're dabbling in the reporting world a little bit. I like that. I respect mm-hmm. that. Um, okay. So, so, so you're hearing that Ben Simmons is, is, is good to go. Yeah. Now you could take this with a grain of salt and, and like you said, Austin, I'm, I'm dabbling in this. I've, I've never really done the reporting before, but Uh, Having said all that, and this is on the record too, I do have a source close to the team. I can confirm that they are close to somebody on the team. I can't confirm that anything they say is true though. So all I know at the moment is that they know somebody that's close to a team, whether that be through a player or somebody in the organization, and that's the best I can say. But I was informed that Ben Simmons is – in good spirits, and he's excited to get back onto the court, and he's feeling good. He's he's moving well, and that kind of coincides with reports from a couple of weeks ago that Ben Simmons has been working privately with some of the team's assistant coaches or personnel, whatever that may be, uh, trying to just get back into a basketball physical state of mind. I don't I don't know if he's running twos, threes, fives. I'm not sure what any of that looks like behind closed doors, but uh, what I was told was that he is excited to play and he's feeling well. That's great to hear. That's always good news. Um, all right. So we have that. So my takeaway, well, first, you know, I thought people were like, like, oh, my God, the medical staff, how could they let this happen? Like, yada, yada, yada. Medical staff doesn't know coming into the game that, like, Ben Simmons is is like one weird move away from being in pain, so, such bad pain that he's going to vomit. Like, no one knows that. That's how back injuries are weird like that. So it happened, and you know the good thing is that he got out of the game, didn't return, and they didn't you know try to force anything. They didn't try to make him play through a different game. You know they, they took their time with it, and it, you know, it looks like you know there, there, there's at least a short-term resolution. The long-term resolution seems to be unknown. Although if I had to bet, I would say it's surgery at some point. Um, and you know, I, I think the medical staff is getting an unfair rap for this because you don't. There's no way to know, like, oh, that's the amount of pain he's in, or that's what we're dealing with here. One false tweak and he's vomiting, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, I, well, my biggest takeaway was that Brett Brown didn't say he, – he, he didn't commit to playing Ben at one position. He said point guard, power forward, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I, I think that's significant. I think that's telling of a of, – of, of a, you know – an in-depth discussion about maybe how can we, you know, reassess our utilization of, of Ben Simmons where we can maximize both him and Embiid on the court at the same time and not really have a liability there. And I think that they're starting to figure out that and that involves, you know, um, Ben at power forward. I also wonder what that means for Al Horford because he said that, you know, they're going to play Embiid hopefully 38 minutes a game in the playoffs and, you know, with Ben Simmons a power forward, where does that 
bring Al Horford into the into the equation, you're obviously not going to um, you know not play Al Horford at all. I mean, he's making 28 million, but I want I I wonder then how that rotation looks. Like, does that mean Al Horford's off the bench? Does that mean that Al Horford is playing with Embiid like two minutes a game? You know, how are they going to segment that so that way the offense actually looks okay? Yeah, I hear you. And Brett did say that they're experimenting with Ben in different environments. And I, I know that Brett and his team said that they've been watching film apparently for the past two months. And I think if you've been watching film, something that's been really indicative, uh, or, or, or at least Ben Simmons on the floor, is that he can play in multiple positions, offensively and defensively. Defensively, I'd argue he's the most versatile defender in the NBA at the moment. Now, I'm working on a Ben Simmons piece on the side, which is going to detail why he is the most versatile, but there's a couple of numbers I'd like to throw out there. Ben is one of two players in the past three seasons to accumulate over 100-plus steals and 200-plus deflections. Austin, I doubt you could guess the other one because it's a strange name. But Andre Drummond is the only other player since 2017 to do the same. Now, against teams with a 500 record, Ben Simmons, his defensive rating is nearly the same as Rudy Gobert's. Anthony Davis has a little bit better of a defensive rating, as does Kawhi Leonard. But Ben Simmons is is up there with some of the most elite defenders in the NBA. And that's against teams with winning records. And also, he's one of the most versatile defenders in the NBA because his versatility rating is 84.4, which is one of the highest for any guards in the NBA, let alone any player. And he's defending the opponent team's number one 27.6% of the time. That's top three in the NBA. So for Ben Simmons defensively, I think he could defend any position. Offensively, when you experiment, that's where it's a little different, right? So we saw Ben featured as a point guard And I think he receives a lot of the criticism for not shooting largely because he's a facilitating player. He's a pass-first player. But what does Ben Simmons at the power forward entail? What does that look like? And I think that's a different story, Austin. I think the Sixers' offense can be ran a lot differently where Ben Simmons can still handle the basketball. But I think what you'll notice is, similar to how they use Ben Simmons towards the back end of the season, Ben might dribble the ball down past half court, give it to a secondary guard, and then he can be utilized different ways off ball. Of course, he can be down there at the dunker spot, and he'd be great there because he's 6'9 with the ability to jump over anybody. But at the same time, he could be then put in a pick-and-roll scenario as a roll man. He could set off ball screens. He could cut back door, things like that. So I think the Sixers can get really creative with him off ball too, and I think that would just do, do volumes for this Sixers offense and Ben Simmons' game as well. Now, I, I do think this. I agree with what you're saying. I do think that that the way that this works in terms of spacing implies that Embiid is going to be out in the perimeter more, and that means more threes from Embiid. That's something to think about. Nothing really to comment on. I'm just sort of thinking about that like from like a logistics standpoint. Um, another thing that I thought was 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 interesting that Brown said was that um, you know they've been you know discussing internally how they can adjust ever since then you know, ever since they've, they've, they've been on this hiatus. And I got to wonder, is there a team that's more poised to make a run or you know, I guess benefits more from this close down than the Sixers? I don't think there is because chance for everyone to get healthy, 
to reassess shortcomings, play with lineup ideas, and really, you know, relaunch this 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 thing. I mean, with the Sixers, at least, you know, you never really knew what they were when all was said and done because there was so much variable. There was so much up and down. There was a lot of players injured all the time. Um, and a lot of other teams don't have that per se. But I think with the Sixers, if you can get them as fresh as possible coming into the playoffs, there's no – there's no reason to put a cap on them. I mean, the fit might be clunky, but they're going to be ready to go. And you think about like what the, what they did earlier in the season. They were 15 and three at one point in the season. They, 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 they went on a run in the middle of the season that you know they, where they won 15 of 18 games. You reel that off in the playoffs. That's one win from a championship. Yeah, and, and they certainly have the size and athleticism to do so. It just comes down to how they're going to execute their offense. And defensively, at full health, they're among some of the best teams in the NBA. But if their offense isn't executed and then it bleeds into their defense and their defense becomes negatively affected as a byproduct of how bad their offense is doing at the time, then I think it's when the Sixers struggle. So there's a couple of things you have to take into mind. Um, looking at the home and away splits and, and how the Sixers vary uh, from home versus on the road and how they play and, and how their style differentiates based upon if they're at home or traveling. Now, if the NBA is relegated to just playing in Las Vegas or Orlando or both individually where the West stays in Las Vegas and the East is out in Disney, I don't know how the home and away advantage will really impact teams. I'm not sure how that works. Um, but I think being at full health definitely benefits the Sixers most than a lot of other teams. Uh, but if I'm being honest, I think the Clippers would be the favorite to win the NBA Finals if there is an NBA playoffs. And there's growing confidence. It's becoming almost certainty that the NBA will resume in seemingly late July for gameplay, that is, not just practice. Uh, but in my opinion, I think the Clippers are best suited to win the NBA Finals in that scenario. But that's not to say that the Sixers wouldn't be one of the biggest beneficiaries of all of this occurring. Uh, no, no, absolutely. I, I agree with, you, with what you're saying 100%. What, what I'm saying more so is I think that they have a chance to, to really run in the East um, more so that they had just sort of limped into the playoffs and gotten, you know, and, and didn't have full health. Um, you know, th- this break, I think, really gives them a chance to contend with anybody in the East. More so than if they if that than than I previously thought. Now at the West is a different story. Clippers are probably in the best position to win it all, but I'm not trying to win it all every year. It's baby steps. I'm trying to get to the finals or get past the second round at least right now. Okay, so you're looking for moral victories. That's that's the difference between you and me. I want that chip. No, I'm kidding. I'm only kidding. But I, I hear what you're saying. And I think another thing you have to look at is some of the injuries for the Sixers. And Josh Richardson, his best month came early in fall. I believe November was his best month of basketball where he played the most minutes and he was the most effective on the team. And then he was crutched by this hamstring injury and lower body injuries. But if you have a healthy Josh Richardson, and there was a couple of games where he was shooting the hell out of the basketball and he was playing staggering defense, if you can pair that, with a healthy Ben Simmons doing different things on offense and a healthy Joel Embiid, whether he's posting up or outside on the perimeter, his presence in the floor is enough. 
Uh, Tobias Harris, maybe he starts playing his natural position. He dabbles at the four a little bit. Al Horford comes off the bench. Alec Burks does this. There's all these different combinations of things for the Sixers. There's really a multitude of ways that their offense can really be executed well. It's just a matter of who is going to put that in place. And if Brett Brown and his disciples have been watching film and they've been watching how the season has been transpiring for the 76ers, then maybe they make adjustments. And who knows, the Sixers can overcome everybody in the East. Uh, But that's only something that time remains to tell. Fair enough. So then let's move on to to this idea of playing games in Disney World. Um, I got to say, I think it's a really, really interesting idea. I'm intrigued. I I am certainly intrigued. Um, I mean, I don't even know where to start. I I I think like first of all, what what is the court going to look like? Is this going to be like, like a big like Mickey Mouse logo? Mickey in the logo start? right in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> like, like 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 I don't even know where to go with that. But I think it presents a unique challenge to not just the Sixers but to every team because it it's going to take the, the the best team, the team that is truly the best is going to be able to win both at home and on the road. And I think not having fans there, it's basically a neutral territory for all. And I really think that that that, that we're going to see who the best team in the NBA really is. There's no home court advantage. There's no, you know, if, you, if you're up 3-0, there's no fan support to, to power you through a game four and get that moral victory to, uh, before you get three or losing five. Um and I think crunch time now becomes a much more interesting situation because you don't have the noise there to, 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 to make, you know, to make it hard to communicate on the court. So I, I think it's going to hurt the Sixers. I think it's going to help the Sixers to some extent, but I think it really neutralizes the playing field for all. Now, when I think about the competitiveness of what the playoffs will be and, and how a winner will be determined, I'm inclined to think that the team with the most talent and the most off-court chemistry wins. But then again, there's really been no situation I can compare to this. So I'm only making that hypothesis because when I look at a team like the Sixers who lacked cohesion and lacked chemistry at times and the inability to communicate on defense, if you put all of those things onto a court and take away something that seemingly fueled the Sixers at home, which was their home crowd, what does this team become? But the problem with that ideology, like I just said, is there's nothing to compare this to. I really haven't seen a team play with no fans in an open court run other than summer league games. And and even in the summer league games, there's still fans. So at the end of the day, I think the best basketball team with the most talent, which could be either numerous stars on the roster or the deepness of the roster, would win the NBA Finals. That could be the Clippers. That could be the Lakers. But it could also be a team like Miami. Who knows? If, if a team has enough chemistry off the court where they can dominate on it without fans and without people in the stadium, maybe they win. But there's a lot of prerequisite things that need to happen for this finals to occur. And Austin, I'm going to speak about a couple of those things. I'll let you talk after me. And then I wrote down some concerns and some optimism, some points of optimism that we could talk about. Uh, But first and foremost, there is a proposal in place for this to occur either in Disney or in Las Vegas. And now there's rumblings it could happen in both locations where 
the West would stay in Vegas, of course, and the East in Disney. Uh, but these are both bubble spots, quote, assuming testing and hotel requirements are sufficiently ironed out, according to Shams. Now, when you read that, it could sound a little pessimistic. Maybe there's not enough testing. Maybe they can't get enough of the hotels to house all the players. But Keith Smith of Yahoo Sports reported that Walt Disney has already began the early stages of reworking some of their hotel spaces for housing for the NBA and their needs. And the World Sports Complex has also done work in anticipation for hosting the MLB and possibly an MLS return. I said MLB, I meant NBA. Uh, So those are two things that once they get sorted out, the testing and the hotel requirements, I think the NBA is going to hit the ground running. Now, the next problem is what Jared Dudley said on ESPN. Uh, Adam Silver spoke about players potentially leaving the area they're in, these bubble spots, because they have this freedom or this leeway to do so. But what happened if what happens if a player comes back and tests positive with Corona, right? Then they can't play. So you look at a team like the Sixers and a team like the Lakers, and Jared Dudley said he thinks it will be smart for teams to wrap their players in this bubble and implement a team rule where they'd say, look, AD LeBron you you know your role on this team. If we lose one of you, this whole thing collapses. You two are staying put in Disney, in the hotel, and you're not going anywhere. And that could be a team-implemented rule. But then what happens if the Sixers, and like I said, the players have this leeway, have Ben Simmons leave and go hang out in California, or, or Joel Embiid leaves and go hangs out in some location, and then they come back and test positive, then they can't play. So it's going to be interesting to see how all these teams sort of implement their own rules or communicate with their own players and what the hotel requirement layouts are going to look like. But I think it's intriguing. It's it's really uncharted territory, and that's what makes this really fun. Can you imagine like a game six scenario where they report that Ben Simmons or Joel Embiid gets tested positive for COVID? And oh my God, all of Philadelphia would absolutely explode. It would be the perfect storm of everything that could go wrong. The radio stations would be going absolutely batshit crazy. Yep. The, the the fans would be going nuts. The national pundits would be going nuts. It, it would be un. It would be the worst thing that could ever possibly happen. So I, I, I have a couple of questions for you, and, and these are my concerns, and then we'll talk about the optimism. But to piggyback on what I just said, how often are the players being tested? And what if a player comes in contact with another player prior to the results emerging? So my question to you is, let's say the 76ers have a playoff series against Boston. The players get tested. Everything's good. And then by game four, a player, knock on wood, tests positive with coronavirus on the Boston Celtics but they already played two or three games against the Sixers, then what happens? And let's say three players test positive, two or Sixers. Do the Sixers just have to put those two players in quarantine and then play with their roster? I, 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 that's a problem of concern in my opinion. And I'm curious to know if, if you think there's anything to combat that. Yeah, I mean, I think I, – so I, I inherently think that there's going to be – risk no matter how you approach this if you're trying to make a, a return before everything is cleared up there's going to always be a risk so i think no matter what the players if someone catches it the players are going to be susceptible to it no matter what and it's basically you have to 
juggle the you know the way the risk versus the reward. Do you want to finish your season? Do you want to get your championship chance? Do you want to do this, do that? Okay, well that this is the price you have to pay. This is the risk you're taking. Um, you know, I, I, by all accounts, everyone who in the NBA who has had it has recovered and and not had too much of an issue. Um, so you know, and I, I'm I'm careful to dance around the topic because you know I'm not a medical professional. I can't speak to the seriousness of it. Obviously, it's been it's very serious. It's it's shut, shut down the country for a couple months now. Um, but I, I just sort of think that, that this is the kind of thing where there's going to be risk if you try to if you try to finish the season up. It's about mitigating and handling it, and 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 then how do we combat it once you know if if we are infiltrated by it. Um, now I, I do think this, I do think that, um, it's going to, um, be this, be this thing where like, there's going to be rumors, going to be a lot of fake news out there about, uh, oh boy, here we go. Fake news, <laughs> uh, fake news out there about this guy might have it. This guy might have it. If someone tests positive for it, they should be removed from the series. That's it. I'm, I, I, you know, I, I understand it might not be your fault, but it, it, if we're going to do this the right way, as soon as you get it, as soon as you're announced to have it, you have to miss the rest of the series um, unless you can find a way to test negative twice in a row before the series comes to an end. Um, that, that, that's sort of what I would do. That's the precaution I would lay mm, in. Store. Right. The most logical. Yeah. And I mean, I think the Jared Dudley point is, is a good one. I also think that if these guys are really professionals and, and if they are mature enough, they can put lay off, you know, they, they, they can stay in a cocoon for a couple of weeks to get the playoffs finished before they resume their other activities. I don't think it's going to be so hard to, you know, could you stay away from California for like two, for like a month or so while we get this finished up and you can have the rest of your off season. You've already had a month and a half, two months off doing rehab or doing nothing. Um, so I, I do think it's going to be, you know, easier to do that, but it's going to take commitment from everybody. I mean, you're going to, you know, you're, you're going to have to be a real leader of your team to be able to abide by that. But I think a way to mitigate and make things sort of a lot less risky is number one, keep it to that way. There's only one team per floor in the hotel. Okay. One team, one team per floor with the regular season still happening. Um, you, you, you could say, you know, like maybe, two teams per floor, one on each side. Um, you can't, you know, you, you, you can't leave your room. Um, you can't, you know, you, everything is going to be transported. Everyone's be wearing, you know, masks or suits or whatever, whatever have you, um, that kind of thing. Um, but I, I think it's certainly doable. And I think it's, I, I think the rampant nature of it is probably subsided a bit where it's not like, okay, this is like, I can't step outside without, you know, being like, a major risk for it. Like, I think, I think that part of it's gone away. I think now it's about like, how do we reduce the spread of it to other people? If we do in fact, you know, be, if we are one of the ones exposed to it ourselves, I think that's something that, that, that the NBA can do. I think, I think if, if you keep it, if you, if you minimize the location of, of this whole thing and keep it centered in one place, I think it's going to be hard for this to spread like wildfire. Um, right. Now, I, I do think that there is one sort of, I guess, risk and one sort of value in 
um, doing doing this hotel idea. Number one, I think the value is with nothing really open, there's no really way for players to go out and party before games. There, there, there's no freedom to go out and do things. Um, and so I think players are going to be a lot more committed by the set, but, but, you know, by, I guess, lack of other options to, to getting rest, to, you know, rehabbing, to, to taking care of themselves prior to game night, prior to game day. And I think we're going to often see the, the best version of players <clears throat> with, with, with this setup. Now, I think <clears throat> with, you know, guys living so close together, there's going to be also a chance for beefs to, to, to be revitalized. Guys are going to think, you know, I, you know, nothing better to do. Why don't I, you know, like play around a little bit? And then there might be beefs that are that, that, that are that are reborn. And you think? Sort of, yeah. Oh, I, I think it's definitely a chance that that can happen. Okay. Um, you know, guys talking shit during games. It leaks out into the hotel. You got guys knocking on doors. And it's, <laughs> I, I, I think there's certainly a chance it could turn up to that because you don't you're not really getting away from anybody. Everyone's sort of around. You're going to see you know guys from other teams. Um, and you know, I, I think it's definitely has a chance for that. But those are just my two inputs. I think our generation is too soft for that. You might have been watching the Last Dance too much. I, I don't. I don't think anything like that could happen in our generation, unfortunately, because it is entertaining. But Austin, you make some good points there. For remember, me, remember, remember when the Rockets and the Clippers, the backdoor entrance, the backdoor fight with Clint Capella. Yep, Chris Paul snuck everybody it in. Happened. I, I guess you're right. Now, I I don't believe they'll be staying in the same hotel. Uh, the teams that do travel to Disney or if it's split into two locations that go to Vegas, I'm not sure. Uh, I think those are logistics for the NBA to figure out. But some of the concerns that I personally had was the Canadian border is closed for everything but essentials right now. So this quarantine heavily impacts Toronto. And I'm not really sure what happens with Toronto if they get a stateside site, if they get a neutral site. Honestly, I have no idea what this does for the Toronto Raptors, but I'm sure that if this does happen where the NBA season does resume, the Raptors won't be left out. It's just going to be interesting to see how Toronto is really integrated. Now, second, I had a conversation with my dad the other night, and it was pretty funny because I'm not sure what the exact quote from Larry Nance Jr. was, but my dad told me that essentially Nance was nervous to return and play the season because of some underlying causes. And I said, well, great. He doesn't have to worry about it. He's on the Cavaliers. And my dad said, no, I, I think all 30 teams are going to come back and play. And honestly, in my opinion, I think that shouldn't happen. Steve Kerr was on the record as saying he does not think the Warriors should return this season. And now the NBA, according to Woj, needs to almost incentivize teams to come back. Um, for me, I think it's pointless to have all 30 teams come back but I can kind of understand why they're doing it. And the only reason I understand why is because it's a business decision. At the end of the day, the NBA is entertainment, but they need their money. And it's not just the NBA, it's also the television deals. And I think the reason why a regular season might occur with only five remaining games is because, as per Keith Smith, who I've quoted multiple times throughout this episode, Teams are four to seven games shy of fulfilling the 70-game benchmark required for RSN deals, RSN, Regional Sports Network deals. 
now ABC, ESPN, etc., broadcast nationally televised games. But when you take these games away, the remaining games televised are all on RSN. And these sports networks accumulate huge amounts of money. So do teams come back and play two weeks, five to seven more games to hit that 70-game benchmark? And then maybe you can determine the back end of the playoff seating through these two weeks. Or do you just jump right into a training camp and then right into the playoffs? I think that's another thing that the NBA has to solve, Austin. Because when I look at the West, I was extremely excited for that eighth seed. You could have potentially had a Lakers-Pelicans matchup, which would have been fireworks. You've got the Grizzlies. You've got Portland. You've got teams down there that are fighting for the eighth seed. But then again, is there really a point in bringing bottom-dweller teams to the Disney or, or, or Vegas locations and having them play for two weeks and bring on unnecessary risk? It's like, would you want to have Memphis play? Of course. But then you might have to have some play-ins. So you could potentially have the seventh seed in the West right now play the tenth seed, and then the eight and nine in like maybe a six-game series, uh, best of three, things like that. Or do you just want to bring all 30 teams back play two weeks and then see who gets the eighth seed. In my opinion, I think you could have that little play-in tournament. I think that would be more exciting uh, from a fan perspective. Um, But it it seems as of right now, all 30 teams are going to come back and play. Uh, But Austin, I want to know what you think about that. So I think a couple things. I think number one, um, I think – I under I definitely understand where 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 you're you're coming from, um, because like I think you know I think there's also like to be to be said that um, there's an increased chance that like a a player from a non playoff team could also have the virus, give it to somebody who has the virus, or give it to somebody on a playoff team, and suddenly LeBron has to you know set out games in a series because you got play because you got COVID from someone on the Pistons, like that, that that's that's stupid to me. Exactly. Um, now, I, I do think that there is a need to have some sort of preseason games, if you will, to get the playoff teams tuned up, ready to go. Um, and I think, you know, the, those guys also want to, you know, there's the, like you said, the financial incentive out of it. What if you did preseason games against, where it was just playoff teams against playoff teams? And it wouldn't count? Wouldn't count for the series. It's just... Playoff teams versus playoff teams. I think that'd be a good idea. And Brett Brown also said that if you look at the numbers after lockouts, there is higher risk of injury when you just try to cram things. So I think that would actually be really nice if you could not overcompensate, but get the players into this location, have them run for a week or two, get them caught up to speed, and then you could kind of kickstart this playoff gauntlet, I guess. But right now, the recall period uh, if the players report by June 1st or mid-June, whatever that date may be, it would be one to two weeks of individual workouts and then two to three weeks of practice. So the NBA games wouldn't necessarily resume until mid to late July, but players can report early June and then use these couple of weeks for practicing and getting caught up to speed. I, I like that idea, though, Austin. That's almost like a spring training-esque type of ordeal for the NBA. Yep. Now it would have to be teams from the east versus teams from the west because you wouldn't want to be able to have that 
I guess that pre-access to mm-hmm. a player opponent and then, you know, have their secrets and then sort of, I mean, I guess that could be some foul play there or like, I, I don't know, but I, I think that would be the best way to do it. And then um, I guess maybe like if you wanted to do it where it's like a different site, um, like, like, like let's say you do in Orlando, you do the playoff teams in Vegas, you do the, the non-playoff teams where they could also finish their season. It would be them against, you know, it was going to be like the non-playoff pool against themselves and then the playoff pool against themselves. Um, maybe even do like a tournament thing where it's like, you know, like you have like an NIT champion, I guess, where it would be like the, the best non-playoff <laughs> team is that champion, I guess. Yeah, you were, you were the, the best worst team in the league. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, so, I mean, I think those are all interesting scenarios where it can work for the financial incentive and it can sort of, you know, get the, the viewership and get the games finished off. Um, I just think that most importantly, you don't want to have a scenario where a player from a non-playoff team infects a player from a playoff team. And then that compromises that series because you're going to have, you know, teams sounding off about that. You're going to have people on social media saying, well, this is a big what if scenario and it's just gonna, it's going to be a headache. So I think if you separate the two and make different, make two different sites, I think you can make it work. Yeah. And there are points of optimism. I'm going to quote Keith Smith again because he's been very useful. We love Keith Smith. Reporting. Yeah, I, I, I do. But he said, all reports are that Adam Silver and the Board of Governors agreed that if is one player, if, if one positive test shuts things down, they shouldn't even consider returning now. So I think that's a little bit of optimism. People may think, well, okay, if let's say LeBron James, the poster child of the NBA, gets infected, knock on wood, of course, you hope he doesn't. Then does the league shut down again? Is there a quarantine process? Does everybody just pack their bags and go home? All right, we had a good run. It's over. No, that's apparently not That's not going to happen because Adam Silver wouldn't even consider this return. So I think that's something to be optimistic about. At the same time, according to Woj, Adam Silver wants a seven-game series to, quote, legitimatize the champion, which is also good. People may not know what the landscape will look like of the playoffs, but at least Adam Silver is making an attempt to make this championship series as competitive and, and you know, legitimate as possible. You, you don't want to hold this against players if they win a championship this year. So a seven-game series may be a good way to prove that they are the true champion of the NBA. And finally, Chris Haynes of Yahoo reported that toward the end of the call, this is a call with Multiple players, it was Giannis Antetokounmpo, LeBron James, Steph Curry, Chris Paul, etc. Discussing the ramifications of the coronavirus pandemic. All parties were in agreement to take the court with proper, proper safety measures once the league is given the green light to commence. Sources said, the group's decision is expected to hold significant weight in the decision-making process for the rest of the league's players when it's time to deliberate on whether to restart the season. And this is all despite Adam Silver saying he could not guarantee their safety because Adam Silver is not Dr. Manhattan. He can't protect the league from this ongoing coronavirus situation. But he has told the players that if you would like to return, your voice will be integral. And the players responded in saying that we want to return. So I think having said all of those, there is growing confidence, growing optimism that the season does resume. And this could be in July. So hopefully if things are easing up a little bit and you could get down the shore or something and 
it's 80, 90 degrees on a weekend. You get a playoff series. There really wouldn't be anything better than that, in my opinion. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a fair point. Um, and I, I, I do think that there are a lot of variables still, but I do also think that um, that we have approached a point where it's almost inevitable that the season's going to come back. I think there's, I, I think, you know, I, I don't think we ever realized how extensive this, this, this down period was going to be. I mean, when it first happened, I was like, all right, this will be like a month, maybe a couple of weeks. And now it's been like, three months or so since we had NBA basketball. Um, so, I mean, I, I think it's been a long time, but I think they, they definitely wanted to get this finished off before they thought about next season. And I think there's also an aspect to it where you have to, they, yeah, I feel for the kids who are going to get drafted this summer, they have to plan their workouts, how they're going to, you know, how they approach this. This is uncharted territory for everybody. And now kids, you know, futures are, 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 are going to be sort of, you know, changed because of this whole thing. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. And we keep saying it's uncharted territory and it really is. No one really has these answers. And I've seen some people on Twitter say that the NBA seems really laissez-faire right now and that they're giving players leeway to travel around and they're going to let families come and stay in the hotels. Uh, Not entourages of of a great amount, but families and and maybe a couple of friends. But I, I think there's really nothing to complain about from a fan's perspective right now because nobody really knows what's going to happen. The only reason that these discussions are occurring right now is because Adam Silver wanted to have a decision made. And there's even rumblings that the NBA season could get pushed back and resume in like the month of December or the NBA season could start in the winter and the NFL season gets pushed back. There's all of these different experiments that are ongoing right now but i think it's it's important for fans to realize that nothing is is written in stone no one really knows what the approach is going to be for any sport for any organization and even for jobs for for people with day-to-day life so right now i'm living like this where i'm just letting life come to me as it is and i think it's important for a lot of people to try to subscribe to that ideology as well and subscribe to the feed to Embiid and give it five stars. Of but course, five than, stars. Other than that, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, I think it's um, something that has to be handled carefully for sure. I'll tell you this, I'm I'm not a fan of pushing the NBA for 2021 back to December. I would I, hate I, that. I, I want to get it started October, November, if you know at earliest, um, and you know really get get because I, I I need to have some overlap my sports that I don't have another downtime because I just can't take not having sports. It's, it's, it's so bad. Um, and I get it. I, I, you know, I, I want to get this, I want to get our country taken care of and figured out, but we need, we need this bad. We need it back. It's getting, it's getting tough. Um, for sure. Now I, I do want to talk about, uh, the, the bracket challenge that we have sort of been kicking around for a couple <laughs> episodes now a couple of months <laughs> we do have a couple of matchups left on my side um and the matchups are as follows we have the one seed andre iguodala um versus tony roden a seven seed um and we have kyle corver versus dario Sharich. that's a two versus a four i'm sorry a three versus a four 
Um, then on the other one, we have Andre Miller versus six seed Nick Stauskas. We have Jody Meeks, a two seed, versus Ursan Ilyasova, a, um, a, a five seed. Brock, are you ready to continue the bracket? I'm ready. Let's do it, man. <laughs> we, had, <laughs> we had a March Madness bracket that was supposed to be for March. And we're in what? Is it June yet? I don't even know what month it is. <laughs> May? Who knows? It, it's, it's, almost, it's almost June and our March Madness bracket isn't even concluded yet. So I think it's, it's only right that we put it to rest now. It's, that's hilarious. All right. Are you, are you prepared to argue Alan Iverson tonight? Yeah, let's do it, man. Not much to be had. <laughs> no, no. That's why I'm. That's why I'm relaxing. I just kicked my feet up. I'm ready to hear whatever crap you're about to talk because nobody's topping AI. But let's right. do it. So, first we have um, Andre Iguodala versus Tony Roden. Andre Iguodala for his career has averaged 12 points per game. Tony Roden, on the other hand, has averaged 11.1. Um, Iguodala's. Uh, Slash line goes as follows, 46.6% from the field, 33 from three, uh, 70.9 from the line. Tony Roden, on the other hand, 41%, 23%, 64.7%. Um, Iguodala, for his career, double the rebounds um, per game, almost um, uh, like... Over over one assist per game more, um, and just overall a much better defender. This shouldn't be too hard. <laughs> Andre Godal gets the get gets the victory here. Brock, you have any reservations about that? No, sir. You you, you went with the right answer on that one. <laughs> okay, next we have Kyle Korver versus Dario Sharge. This one might be a little bit more competitive here, actually. I think. Um, Kyle Korver, you know, I, I really think, you know, really deep down, I don't think uh, Dario's career in Philadelphia is over. I, I, re- I think he's going to be back here really? at some point soon. I, I really do. I think he's going to be cheap. I think, he, I think he really fit well. He had his best years in Philly, um, and I think he wants to be back here. Now, let's take a look at the careers. Dario Saric averages over two and a half points per game more in his career than Kyle Korver. He also is shooting just below um, Kyle Korver's career numbers of 44.2, and 87.6. Dario is at 43.7, 35.6, and 83.5. So I think the shooting numbers are actually a lot closer than you might than one might might have originally thought. Um, would you say Dario is a better defender than Kyle? I would tend to think so. I'd agree with that. I think Kyle is definitely underrated defensively, or at least he was in more his his, his athletic days. But I, I'd agree with that statement. All right. So, and then we have on top of that, we have um, six rebounds per game for for Dario. 2.1 assists, Kyle, three rebounds, 1.7 assists. I think it's pretty obvious who the better player is. Only argument I would say that Kyle actually had for this 
what would be that um you know he he was an all-star however it was that year where the entire hawk starting five was all stars that was a bogus all-star selection if you ask me dario charge can he move on i think he he's gonna move on but i like to see if you have any reservations about that i think it's tough to disrespect the og white shooter um but i i'm also gonna go with dario uh, I think he's a more versatile basketball player. I think he offers more on the court than just shooting. Uh, at this stage in his career, he's very young, so he could also blossom into a much greater player. And as a fan, this bracket is the process era. And when I look back on the process era, one of the names that will forever be inked to that team or the teams of that era is Dario, the homie Dario. So I think he's the right choice here. All right. Then we have number one seed. Oh, also, can, have you ever seen anybody celebrate like Dario did in his career? I mean, those athletic jump, like fist bumps, were always worth the watch. I if bought you- a shirt off of somebody at my school who was selling Super Dario t-shirts instead of Super Mario t-shirts, and it was Mario. Uh, doing a jump, but it had Dario's head on it. I, I paid $15 for that shirt and never wore it, but it was a good $15 in hindsight because uh, Dario gave me some memories. <laughs> That's great. Um, next we have Andre Miller versus Nick Stauskas. Sauce Castillo, I think his time comes to an end. W- w- wouldn't you say? Yeah, there's there's no argument from me here. You're not gonna get much resistance. Can you believe that 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 Sam Hinkie was able to pull off Nick Stauskas and a first for Carl Landry? No, and and I mean, look at what Nick Stauskas did in Philadelphia. Like it was it was kind of horrendous. I'm not gonna lie. He <laughs> he may be one of the few players whose field goal percentage was almost equivalent to their three-point percentage. Like, he shot 32% from three in his first year here and 36% in his second year on the same amount of attempts, and his field goal percentage was 38% and 39%. So he nearly shot almost as bad from the field as good as he did did from beyond the arc. So for, for a guy that was drafted as highly touted as a shooter as he was, uh, it, it was miraculous that, that – I think he was was able to pull that off. And so Nick, for his career, 6.8 points, uh, 2.1 rebounds, 1.5 assists. Um, you, like, you, like you said, 39% from the field, 35 from three, 81 from the line. Andre Miller, double the points, almost double the, the rebounds per game, despite being smaller. And... I would say four times the number of assists per game <laughs> as Andre, as Nick Stauskas. Mm-hmm. Andre shot 21% from three for his career. Not great numbers there, um, but I think it's pretty obvious who wins. I also think, uh, I can't remember if I said this last time, but it's very underrated the fact that the year that the, that the Sixers lost Miller they won 14 less games on his last year in Philadelphia with basically the same roster here. So 
that's just something to, pay, to, to think about. I think it's, I think Andre Miller is one of the most underrated players in the in the history of the NBA. All right. <laughs> Good. Good conversation. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, next we have Jody Meeks, two seed, versus the one and only Ersan Ilyasova, the five seed. Brock, do you have a case for either way? Oh, man. I think I'm going to go Ersan uh, because he did play an important role on propelling the 76ers uh, to the playoffs. And furthermore, he contributed in the playoffs for the 76ers. Um, the only thing I really remember about Ersan is his ability to absorb contact and take charges. Defensively, he's pretty, pretty pedestrian, but offensively, uh, for Philadelphia, he did have a nice season when they traveled to the playoffs. So I think I'm going to go Ersan here. You would probably be surprised by their stats. Um, Ersan, same or like one point more per game for his career than Jody. Um, he had his splits, his shooting splits, 44, 36, and. 76 no 77 whereas Meeks was 42 37 88 um Ursan averaged nearly triple the number the number of rebounds uh the same number of assists per game um I think Ursan wins it pretty handily I think that Jody also faded down the stretch of of of, of meaningful games when you needed him whereas Ursan stepped up and took meaningful charges um <laughs> Time and time again. So, Ursan, I think, even though he's not quite as athletic, I think he has to move on here. It's not. It's not much of a question. Yeah. So, next we have in my in my final four, Andre Iguodala versus Dario Saric, Andre Miller versus Ursan Liasova. Um, I think the Iguodala Dario matchup is a pretty compelling one. Okay, what, 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 why do you think so? <laughs> I love how you're like, wait, what? I'm, I'm uh, curious, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, first of all, Dario is a much better, much more versatile scorer than Iguodala was. Um, and you know, I know Iguodala was more, more athletic, but Dario could, could you know, was, was, a, was a pretty good shooter in his time as a sixer. Um, and, you know, his career numbers lag off because of what he's done in Minnesota and in Phoenix since then, but... Looking at a much better free throw shooter, um, and a guy who, who at a time was adapting well to his role in the NBA, whereas Iguodala sort of he adapted well, I would say, in Golden State, um, but he was never really the shooter that, that that the NBA needed him to be for him to be to, for his true value to really be witnessed to the public. Um, and I, I I I would say that you know Dario is a better rebounder. Um, ultimately, I think Iguodala wins this matchup because I think the assists per game and, and the overall sort of ability that he had as a passer and a facilitator in addition to a scorer was was, was much greater than, than Dario's was. I think both are very underrated players, but I think Iguodala what is, um, I think he's going to be a Hall of Famer. I do. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think cementing his legacy with Golden State is probably the icing on top of that cake. But for 
Iguodala, there's really not much of a debate here against Dario Saric for me. Uh, Iguodala placed top 20 in steals per game on multiple occasions, especially with the 76ers organization. He was top 15 in effective field goal percentage one year with the Sixers. Steal percentage, he spent a couple of seasons top 20. True shooting percentage in 2005, he was top 10. And if you look at durability, there's really not much better than Andre Iguodala several years with the 76ers. And 04, he played 82 games. 05, he played 82 games. 06, 76 games. And then 2007 through 2009, he played 82 games. So he contributed in massive amounts of ways for the 76ers, whether that be defensively, scoring, collecting rebounds, going against opponents, teams, one option or two option. Played with some great Sixers players. He averaged almost 20 points a game in, in certain seasons. So Iguodala uh, is going to take the cake here for me. I do I, – again, and I don't want to say this like it was like much of a question. I was more posing that it was, was not, not as much of a lopsided debate. Okay, I can hear that. Uh, now, we do have Andre Miller versus Ersan Ilyasova. I think this is also a good one. I think that they're, they're much different players, much different positions. Um, and I, I think it's a very weird um, sort of matchup. I, I will say – it could, uh, Miller, I think, led the NBA in like steals and assists per game, uh, at least one season, or it, may, it might have been total assists and total total steals. But um, you know, Andre Miller was 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 when you think about a pure facilitator, you think about Andre Miller, um, and you know, a guy who had a mid range game was an excellent passer. Um, you know, what what wasn't a terrible defender despite looking like he had bricks for feet and being undersized a bit. Um, but he was just a guy you could trust, a, a guy you could trust in, in closing out games and being on the floor. He was really, really underrated, I think. Um, now, as it goes for Ursan Lyasova, um, I would say when you think of prototypical stretch four, you think of somebody a little bigger, a little more of a prolific three-point shooter. But I think Lyasova had that mold where he just kind of fit and blended well into an open offense where – Passing and just driving and re- reading and reacting to a defense, drive and kick, pump fake and go, back doors, all that stuff. Um, and I think Ursan's value might be a little, might have been a little bit inflated by the era in which he played. I think if he played back in the early 2000s, he basically would have been relegated to a, a three and D role where. You know, he wasn't quite as physical enough to be a, a, a defensive stopper to give big minutes to. Whereas now it's sort of like, you know, you can you, you, you can plug him in and play and he can get he can poke some balls loose for you, take a charge, make a shot. But I think Miller's game sort of translates across a couple different eras. And I think he I, I think I think Miller is an OG for sure. Yeah, and he's been in the league for more years than you could count on your hands and feet. Uh, and in his time in the NBA, he spent most of it facilitating, as you alluded to, uh, 14 seasons top 20 in assists. And 2001 was that year when you said he was first. He led the league in assists. He had 882, which was the best, the highest total in the NBA. But for a guard of his height to play in multiple decades or at least multiple different eras of the NBA, I should say. He spent seven seasons top 20 in steals, uh, 13 seasons in, in assists per game, 
14 seasons in that top 20 in assist percentage. He was great with value over replacement. He was a good serviceable guard, and he was a leader. And I talked about the durability with Andre Iguodala. Andre Miller was equally as durable. In 05 06, 82 games. 07 08, 82 games. 08 09, 82 games. 09 10, 82 games. And mind you, he was drafted in 1999. 2011, he played 66 games. In 2012, he played 82 games. So all the way until the end of his career, he was handling that one spot. And I think because of that and his presence in the league for such a long amount of time, He's also going to advance here from my from from my perspective. Okay, so now we have the final four showdown. Pair of one seeds, Andre Iguodala versus Andre Miller. I love, love, love Andre Iguodala. I really do. I think Andre Miller is a better player. Really? Yep. Wow. Okay. Uh, and here's why. So, Miller... Um, Averaged 3.7 rebounds per game for his career. Is that why? Iguodala, Iguodala, Iguodala 5.1. Iguodala 5.1. Um, and Iguodala is three inches taller. So 1.4 rebounds more per game, despite being three inches taller than in Miller. Miller was an underrated rebounder for, for a point guard his size, 6'3". Not bad athletic. Um, he... In his career, he averaged um, 30.9 minutes per game, 2.4 turnovers. Um, so that's that 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 ratio of minutes to turnovers is, is is pretty outstanding. Iguodala played three more minutes and only averaged 0.5 less per game. Um, so I think Miller is a much better passer. Um, overall, probably a much better shooter, and. I think defensively, you know, Iguodala averages more steals per game. I, uh, but I would also say that he had an advantage of having a, a, a bigger wings, a longer wingspan, able to match up better with different guys. Um, and I think he sort of had the benefit, the luxury of, of, of having the prime of his career at a time when open court basketball um, was 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 more of was more of a thing. Whereas Miller, it was half court sort of sort of style. It was posting up the big man and the trail end of that combined with some jump shooting. But Miller, I think overall had quietly a bigger effect on winning than Iguodala did. Okay. Now I'm going to disagree just because Andre Iguodala is a three-time NBA champion, uh, a 2014 finals MVP champion. Uh, whether you want to argue that or not, he still won the finals MVP that year. And he was also a two-time all-defense recipient for Andre Iguodala. With his time in Philadelphia, in the playoffs, he was still very impactful. He even scored 21.5 points per game in 2008, playing almost 45 minutes per game in the playoffs. Granted, they only played six games. But for most of his time in Philadelphia, in the playoffs, he was effective almost 14 points per game. He dished the rock with nearly five assists per game, over five rebounds a game, nearly two steals a game. So I think with his time in Philadelphia in the playoffs, he was an effective player. I'd argue more effective than Andre Miller when he was on the 76ers. But I talked about cementing his legacy in Golden State, and Andre Iguodala certainly did that. 
six seasons with the Warriors. They won three finals, a little under 10 points per game, but Iguodala was a huge reason as to why Golden State wins those finals. Uh, Shot nearly 50% from the field, over 58% on two-pointers, almost 35% in six seasons from beyond the arc. So he was shooting well, better than he did in Philadelphia. And that was five seasons with Philadelphia. So his body of work got better as he aged. You could, of course, make the argument that that is a product of his teammates and the style of play. But nonetheless, Iguodala is a true winner, and he definitely has the accolades to cement him in the Hall of Fame. While I think he eventually makes it, I don't think he's going to make it right away. I think it's going to be one of those Mochik situations where it does take some time for him to finally get recognized. Uh, but for Andre Iguodala, I think he wins over Andre Miller here. But this is your side of the bracket. Let me ask you this. Let me ask you sure. this. Do you think, because I don't think this, but do you think that Andre Iguodala was better at his role as a, sl- as, as a role-playing slasher, three, you know, defender kind of player, than Andre Miller was as a lead guard? I think Miller was a better lead guard than Iguodala was at his role as a, as, as a slasher, defensive player with you know a touch of, a, of, a, of an offensive game. I'm still going to argue in favor of Andre Iguodala here. I think for Golden State, Iguodala definitely improved uh, compared to his Philadelphia numbers based on the style of play and who he was surrounded by. But if you go back and watch some of those series, Iguodala was a defensive anchor. And he's a player that Golden State needed, whether he was starting or coming off the bench, needed on the floor. And that's saying something because this is a Golden State team that people regard as one of the greatest teams of all time. And Andre Iguodala won a finals MVP on that team. And this is a team with Steph Curry, and this is a team with Klay Thompson. And Iguodala wins that finals MVP for his defensive efforts and his contributions in his role. He didn't overplay, and he didn't try to be somebody he wasn't. Uh, of course, Andre Miller was a fantastic facilitator. And in the playoffs with Philadelphia, he was in his 30s, his early 30s. He scored nearly 20 points a game, but he only shot 45% from the field. And it was less than 25% from three. 23.1% on 1.1 attempts and under five assists. And the playoffs is where basketball matters. So in my opinion, I think it's Andre Iguodala again over Andre Miller. But this is your side of the bracket, so don't don't let me influence your answer. <laughs> um, so I'll pose this to you: when I think of like like you know when you think of like like an average NBA player at any position, if I could tell my my kid to be like, this is the guy you should model your game after, I would rather say Andre Miller as a point guard. If my son were if my son were a six two six three point guard, then if my son were like a six six wing, I wouldn't say Andre Iguodala. So like if you wouldn't think about like the most, like not the superstar, but just the guy who does the job well, that guy for me is Andre Miller at point guard. For me at at, at shoot at, at like shooting guard small forward, it wouldn't be Andre Iguodala. All right, well. Given that I'm 5'8", white and Jewish, Austin, if I do have a boy and he asks me, I'm going to tell him to stay the hell away from the basketball court. He asks me either one of those questions, unless I'm impregnating a woman that's 6'6 plus. Uh, no, but in all seriousness, I, I can understand more power to More power to you. Yeah, right. And my point wasn't like my own son. I'm just saying like 
I'm just messing with you. <laughs> All right. So we have Andre Miller moving on. Um, uh, Andre Godala might have been the favorite, but he was upset in the in the in the um, the semifinal by Andre Miller. Next, we have Allen Iverson. Yeah. So if you if your son asks if your son is a six two point guard and he asks which point guard should I model Andre Miller or Allen Iverson, which one are you going to tell him? Well, I wouldn't say I would say AI is not a point guard. Okay. And end the episode. We're done. I'm leaving. <laughs> no, AI AI is a Hall of Famer, an All Star more than ten times, a four time scoring champion. And mind you, he's six feet, apparently, and he was doing this in a league that was dominated by bigs with with very minimal floor spacing. He was a three-time steals champion. He was a two-time All-Star MVP, a Rookie of the Year, a 2001-2000 MVP. And in the finals, they beat the Kobe Bryant-Shaquille O'Neal Lakers one game. This is a moral victory. But that was the only loss that that Lakers team had in the playoffs that season. So Andre Iguodala, or or Andre Iguodala, Allen Iverson didn't take down uh, uh, Shaq and and Kobe, those two beasts that they are. But he did give them an L. Uh, And and that's really all that I'm going to bring to the table for this argument. I've argued in favor of AI for various weeks now. Uh, But Austin, if you'd like to make a case for Andre Miller, Power be to you. Okay, so let me let, let me let me ask you this. Well, I don't have the stats to support this one. This is this is going to be tougher than I had imagined. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me ask you this: Did you know that Andre Miller played almost four hundred games more than Allen Iverson? That's that's great for him. That, did that, you know? <laughs> did you know that Andre Miller had a hundred and forty fewer turnovers in his career? Again, that's great for Andre Miller. It means nothing to me. <laughs> tough one, tough one. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's not much to say. Obviously, Allen Iverson, a far better player than than Andre Miller was. Um, we are going to hand the national championship for mediocrity to Allen Iverson. Keep in mind, this is not the battle of the most mediocre player, but the best player during time of mediocrity for the Sixers. Um, Allen Iverson is finally getting that championship he so badly wanted. All right, well... Th- I- there, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, Austin. I'm glad we can give Allen Iverson the the uh, finals here. I don't know what we're we're gonna call it on his basketball reference page, but he definitely earned this one. They're going to add this to the Wikipedia page as the only official, oh, the only official, credible NBA championship in Allen Iverson's career. There you have it. There we have it. He is Brock Landis. Brock, do you have any parting any parting words? I never do. I always try to say something intelligent or funny, but every time I listen back, I just sound like an idiot in the final minute. So 
I don't have any parting words, but I appreciate you always asking me, Austin. It's always a pleasure working with you. Let me ask you this. What runs around the yard endlessly but never leaves? What runs around the yard endlessly but never leaves? Oh, my God. I'm stumped. I've got no idea. That would is, be, it, is, it a, is it a King Cobra bottle opener? <laughs> it is not a King Cobra. It is a fence. I am Austin Krell. Oh my he is Brock God. Landis. Brock, as always, my pl- is, a, is a pleasure. We will resume. We will have another episode with some more hypothetical scenarios soon. The mediocrity bracket has been completed. Allen Iverson is going home a champion. Do you believe in the magic of March Madness? I sure do. Um, he is Brock Landis. Follow him on Twitter at Landis Brock. I am Austin Krell. Follow me on Twitter or don't, or maybe even unfollow me. Who knows at this point? <laughs> at, Krell, at Krell TPL. As always, thank you for listening to the Feed to Embiid. Stay safe, everybody, and have a great night. Do you like shotgunning beer? Do you want to increase your shotgunning time at parties? Check out my boys at the King Cobra. The King Cobra is a shotgunning tool that makes a perfect shotgunning hole in under a second. It's also a tab puller, vent puncher, and all fits on a keychain. For more information about the King Cobra, check them out on Instagram at the King Cobra Co. That's the King Cobra Co. And Cobra is double with a For 10% discount on all products, enter the code TRUSTACOBRA10, all caps, all one word. Pick up yours today. The Feed to Imbued is protected by U.S. copyright laws. Reproduction and distribution without my written permission is prohibited. Copyright the Feed to Embiid 2020. As always, thank you for listening to the Feed to Embiid and have a great night.